0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: alike the world over, we are all familiar with fear. We walk through life and we regularly bump into things that challenge us, that threaten us, that we know we can't control, that may very well harm us, and we're scared. On a macro level, globally, we fear terrorism. We We fear nuclear or biological attack. We fear global economic forces. But on the micro level, closer to home and closer to the heart, we open up the newspaper and we read and we fear our children being abducted. We go to the doctor and we fear the test results. We all know fear. It is common in life. Maybe that's why it's in the Psalms so much. God talks about fear repeatedly in the Psalms. Perhaps he wants his children, us, to know how to deal with the things that threaten us in life and to triumph through them. We're going to see that this morning in Psalm 27. We've been preaching the last several weeks through the book of the Psalms. We began in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And we saw there the the life of blessedness, the theme of the life of blessedness introduced to us. We saw in Psalm 1 that blessed life, that is the life that is happy and at rest inside, that knows gladness and joy, that that life is tied to internalizing and meditating day and night on the law, the instruction of the Lord. Taking that in, following hard after it, Psalm 1. And in Psalm 2, the same theme with the blessed life, we saw that rather than the instruction of the Lord, Psalm 2 ties the same blessed life to the anointed of the Lord, to seeking shelter and refuge in the Lord's anointed. That's the last verse of Psalm 2. That's how you find the blessed life. Cling to his instruction and his anointed. We're going to see similar themes here this morning in number 27. Psalm 27 is going to deal with fear and it's going to urge us to cling to the Lord, to seek shelter and refuge in him. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. I'm going to unpack it through three major points. Before we do that, let me read the psalm. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, Psalm 27 then we'll pass back through it, and then we'll move on to three major points. 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David begins the psalm with an affirmation. He's speaking of the Lord. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. The Lord is his light, that which is delightful and happy and good opposed to darkness, the light that shines into his heart, that is the Lord, and he is his salvation, he is his deliverer, in him he finds salvation because the Lord is his stronghold, that is his place of refuge within which he is sheltered, he says these things about him, he looks at him and he understands these things about him and so his repeated response is, what do I have to be afraid of? I mean think about it. what do I have to be afraid of it says that repeatedly when evil doers and adversaries and foes and hostile armies and war rise up all around me I mean that's what's happening in my life when that happens what do I have to fear they come against me to do me harm but they actually come against the Lord and they themselves are the ones who will stumble and fall he's the fortress in whom I am hiding he is the glad and happy light shining in my soul therefore I'm not gonna fear my heart will be confident that's the first section verses 1 to 3 it's replete with who the Lord is and I will not fear begins and ends with that fearlessness he pictures the enemies as if maybe they were wild beasts coming to eat him Or if there are armies coming to camp around him and make war against him. We're not really sure what's going on there. How can they be both? He's kind of left it vague, which allows it to be applied to many different circumstances in life, many hardships and challenges. But what David's clear about is amidst the hardship, he's not going to fear because the Lord is shining into his heart. He's the one giving him confidence and chasing away fear. David has found the blessed life. The enemies are still there, they're all around, but David has found the blessed life. And the key is obviously the Lord's closeness to David. And David's closeness to the Lord. So in verse 4, he writes of one singular objective, one focus. One thing that he's after. The key question amidst the threats and challenges is, does the reality of the Lord right in front of me, does it seem bigger, larger, more clear, closer to me than all the other challenges that I'm facing from all these enemies? That's the question. So David's aspiration, a thing which he persistently seeks, is nearness to God. He wants to see God close to him, right here. He wants fellowship with him. It's the thing that he's after. And he asks, he pleads, one thing I want, can I constantly, day after day, dwell right here with you in your house, God? That's what he wants. Figuratively, he wants to pull up a chair right in the middle of God's living room and look at him. That's what he wants. To gaze at him like we do when we look at something stunning. We don't drive cross-country to the Grand Canyon, pull up, get out of our car, look over the edge and say, yep, big hole, and 30 seconds later leave. We don't do that. And the reason we don't is that when we pull up and we look in, there's a lot to look at. We stand there and we explore it with our eyes much more than you would the the environs around my driveway for instance because there's a lot more in the Grand Canyon and what you see is a lot more intriguing take your breath away it's David wants to just sit there forever all the days of his life to sit there and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord literally he wants to behold his delightfulness that's what he's after he rephrases it in the next line to inquire or to meditate in your temple not inquire as in Lord I have a question let me ask but inquire in the sense of wondering about pondering taking something into your mind and rolling it around in there David's aspiration his hope is to sit down take in and roll around inside of him always the beauty of the Lord. That's what he's after. Why? Notice this connection, and it's important for understanding this psalm. Why does David, why should you, why does David want to gaze at God's beauty? Is verse 4 entirely disconnected from verses 1 to 3? no it's not verse 5 connects them helps us see how they're joined together why should David want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord verse 5 for because he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble how can David not be afraid when the enemies come all around him and they come up to attack him because at that moment David's not actually on the battlefield looking at the enemies. Physically he is. Internally where he is is he's perched on a stool in the center of God's living room. Looking at him. God has cast the shelter of his tent down around him. This is spiritual shelter. Tents don't protect you in battle. Shelter would be maybe a high tower or wall or fortress. David's pushing us in a different direction. He's hidden me in his shelter. You see tent coming up here shortly. What what David is experiencing is in the midst of the hardship I see God and God drops the fold of his tent down around me and he protects me. Or to use another image, he lifts me up high on a rock above the fray. He exalts my head up above my enemies. He says, so I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to be confident, verse 3. And I'm going to offer sacrifices of joy. I'm going to sing and make melody to the Lord, in verse 6. God is delivering me by showing himself to me. Yeah, there's a lot of enemies around. I don't know how that's all going to work out. But God is delivering me by showing himself to me. I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to fret and worry. See that connection there? Fear is chased away as David beholds the Lord. Something happens there inside of him. David's told us that by way of narration. Notice all these verses, he's just narrating. He's making statements. He's explaining something to us who are reading it. But now, in verse 7, the focus shifts, and he's now talking directly to the Lord. He changes. He looks to Him. He needs, verse 4, he needs access to the presence of the Lord. And so in verse 7, he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry, be gracious to me and answer me. Please give me that. Deal with me in grace. One thing I have asked of you, Please hear me and respond. Notice he does not pray directly for fearlessness or for boldness. He prays for access to God, which leads to fearlessness and boldness. He prays that God would show his face to him. Command in verse 8, Seek my face. It Originates with God, not in the human heart. We know that because the command is plural. The command is actually you all seek my face. This is God speaking to people. Not David speaking to himself. You all seek my face. And David's heart responds, I'm going to do that. I'm going to seek your face. So please, be found. Be findable, God. That's my request. Don't hide. Don't reject me. Don't forsake me. Don't cast me off. You see that down to the next several verses. That The center of his request is access. That's what he's after here. So he continues, he sees that God has been this before, he's been his help, he has confidence that he will be his salvation again, so he continues to ask, God show me your way, show me your level path, there's a a minefield of enemies all around me, and if I stray away from you, I'm going to step away, I'm going to step on something that's going to kill me, show me your way. Show me how to follow after you to find you and meet you. Guide me, please, Tis hope. He's confident the Lord's going to do that. He's confident that he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The land of the living, very often that phrase is talking about here and now. This life, I don't know how. Maybe he's going to deliver me physically. Maybe just spiritually. But he will show me his goodness in this life. He will give me the grace of giving me access. So he gives himself then a command. David, this is in the singular. He's speaking to himself now, not to everybody else. David, wait. Wait for the Lord, verse 14. Let your heart be strong and encouraged by this coming grace to you. Stop and wait. Don't run off in your own way. Don't resort to your own abilities. Wait. He'll deal with the fear by giving you himself in his time. Wait. And the psalm ends. That's the psalm. Obviously traced through rather quickly. That's how it all holds together. I want to spend the remaining portion of our time here this morning pulling out, making explicit one important relationship in this psalm. It has three pieces to it, I think. I'm going to pull that out, show these three pieces, and together they're going to teach this one main idea. Here's the main point here. God provides Himself as the defense from fear. So we must persistently gaze at Him. God provides Himself as the defense from fear. That's how he's going to deal with fear in our lives. So we must, the job that we must do is we must persistently gaze at him. We can develop that in three points. The first one is found in the first section, a relationship we already talked about, so it should sound familiar. Here's the first main point. Clear, compelling, controlling vision of the Lord chases out fear clear compelling controlling vision of the Lord chases out fear not generic tired truisms not stuff I've already heard before and I already know if, if that's all that God is if that's all that God remains for you that's not gonna chase out any fear these kinds of of old truths that, are, that sit stale within us intellectually we know them but they're, they're dead in us practically they're just teachings that doesn't help at all clear compelling controlling vision of the Lord is what we need if we're going to deal with this fear I'll show you where that comes from the first word of the psalm is Lord the Lord is something to David he himself not exactly what he does. He himself is something. Now obviously there's a relationship. If, if he is something, he's going to have to act in accordance with that. These two things, his nature and his actions are related for sure. But David is most focused on who the Lord himself is. He himself is the light. You can see this by way of contrast. Think of a light like a flashlight. What do you use a flashlight for? A light that shows you how to get somewhere else. It illumines your path to another objective. Contrast that with a room that is a glow, A light, a sphere of light that lights the path and also is the place where you're going. He Himself is the light. He is the goal. He is the good and the glad and the happy that's shining into David. He's not telling him where else to find those things. He is light. And He is the salvation and the stronghold. Talked about those a little bit already. But he clearly sees God as the place, the sphere, in which he is saved, in which he is protected. He's the stronghold. He's the unassailable fortress. He hides in him and he's protected. He doesn't just think this intellectually. He is fully persuaded by it. He's gripped by it. It affects his life. He is that for David. The Lord is those things. He can be that for you too. Seeing God like that, here's the connection again. Seeing God like that chases away fear because He is the foundation of life. You see Him as the light in your life. As the stronghold in which you hide. Those are ways of describing what is at the bedrock foundation of your life. That on which you stand. We can talk about the Lord being our foundation or our rock. And that itself can be cliche. Or it can be life changing. That's what it was for David. He looks at that and he asks, who should I fear? He stands on his foundation and he knows he's standing there and he says, nothing and no one. I don't fear anything. I know where I am. I know in whom I am. I'm sure he talks about being fearless without fear. I'm sure his pulse rose when he saw the enemies around him. I'm sure that when he heard news of of the attack, that he was nervous. When the credit card bill came or when he heard the doctor's report or whatever it is in life I'm not saying emotionlessness bland flatline not talking about that we're talking about the fear that controls David looked at this I'm sure his pulse rose and he was anxious for his life probably yet he was able to stand against them trust the Lord and move ahead he wasn't controlled by fear that's what I'm talking about that's the kind of fear that gets chased away so ask yourself what do you fear? what are you afraid of? again, not the natural appropriate emotions that happen when we're threatened fear that controls you what are you afraid of? we all know that sometimes, maybe many times, we experience fear that changes our thoughts our behavior our attitudes It influences and controls us in certain ways. Think about it for your life. I'm serious. Stop and think about it. Write something down on your paper. What do you fear in relation to? You're afraid of something happening or something not happening. What do you fear? Write it down. Realize what it is that that drives you sometimes, and then also realize this, that clear, compelling, controlling vision of the Lord can chase away that particular fear that you wrote down. It can. If you can see Him in His fullness, He can dominate you on the inside, speak to you security, assure you of His goodness towards you. Such a vision can do that lack of such vision on the flip side creates the recipe for fear here's why, let's think about this what's going on inside of you when you fear something there's a battle of sorts in there there's a struggle inside, a struggle in your heart about what will be God for you what will be the foundation on which you build your life now I realize I don't know what you wrote down. I don't know all the details of that. And I am, to a degree, painting with a big brush here, and so there's a chance that I'm going to slop some paint where it doesn't belong. So if I need to clarify some things, come and talk to me afterwards. But understand that fear is pointing out something in you that is contending for your heart's foundation. You see it shaken then. You realize, I don't know if I can deal with that. If that happens, or if it doesn't happen, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm worried. I'm anxious about that. I fear it. There's something there that's threatening to become the foundation for you. We don't fear things that are insignificant. And we more fear things that are more significant. If you think about depth here, the closer to the bottom it gets, the more you fear it. There's a contention, a struggle going on inside of you. Now, there are some things that should be very close to the foundation and that we should be keenly aware of and, and really inclined to defend, worried if they're threatened. You know, our children's health, for instance. Those are things that we should be very aware of and they should be very close to the foundation, but they should not be the foundation. This is hard. It's easier to say than it is to do, but the goal is to get to a place Where God Himself alone is the foundation. The unshaken, unshakable foundation. And we can look at all of life and we can see Him as the bottom, as dominating who we are, what we think about, what we value. And we can actually say, oh God, it will hurt if I lose this. But I still have the thing I most need. The thing I actually am resting on so I will not collapse. I still have you. It's easier to say than it is to do. You Think about your children or your spouse and you see them threatened. It's hard to not fear in relation to them. The goal, though, is that God would be the foundation. It's hard, I know. If I need to qualify that a little more in relation to your particular experience, please talk to me afterwards realize the general point seeing the Lord for who he really is is the only way that he will become the foundation of life it's the only way he'll be able to chase away this fear in us we need that this God entranced vision of life to see God in everything over everything everywhere We need that kind of vision if we want to defeat fear. So, how do we get it? It doesn't just come, it doesn't just arrive. We have to seek after it. It Takes us to the second point. The first point is the connection between seeing the Lord and fear being chased away. Well, we need to see it, we need to see Him. Where does that come from? We have to seek Him. The second point is heed the call to seek the Lord's face. Heed it, that is obey it, respond to it. In verse 8 he says, seek my face. David says, I'm going to seek you. That's his one desire. In fact, in verse 4, it is the desire. The thing he wants. The thing he is passionate for. It is his aspiration I want to see you. I want access to you. I'm going to chase after you. God, grant me this. It's His desire. Is it yours? It must be your key, most significant desire. And don't you want it to be? Brothers and sisters, just look at Him. Gaze at Him. Behold the beauty of the Lord. His nature is the fullness of perfection. He is exactly what is right. Exactly what is pure. Exactly what is noble. He is the ultimate of sovereign might. The holder of all power. All authority is in His hands. He is enthroned above. And He knows all things. There is nothing that escapes Him. Nothing that He does not yet know. Nothing that has passed away from His mind. He knows all things. Everything is openly known to Him. Delightful is His reign. Pleasant is His knowledgeable nature. He's a beautiful God. It may seem a little unnerving to realize that He knows absolutely everything about absolutely everything and He has all the power to exploit that if He were to choose to do so. Thankfully, marvelously, He has combined such raw dominion with righteousness and justice. They are the foundation of His throne. He is radically committed to upholding the cause of rightness and goodness and justness. He will certainly bring all of that to pass. He will not permanently tolerate wickedness. That's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. He is the type of God who would create and then redeem when it became necessary who is patient with sin and slow to anger, eager to have mercy, not delighting in punishment and wrath, and yet able to punish in wrath, in his own timing. He is firm in his gentleness. He is patient in his actions. He is loving in his justice. He is artistically creative in his logical order. He is intriguing and coy sometimes. Well, he is also straightforward and clear. He is the type of God who is ultimately concerned with making himself known and his self glorified. And he is a type of God who would make creatures for whom and to whom making himself known and making himself glorified is their greatest delight and the beauty that they will most glory in. His nature is incredible. Gaze at it, ponder it, get a handle on his nature, think. And get a handle on his nature by looking at his nature displayed in his works. See His creativity and His might by contemplating something He has made. Look at all the intricacy in it. And then deliberately connect it back to the nature of God. Jim mentioned going up to the Albion Basin. We did that a few weeks back. Go up there and look at all of the beauty, all the flowers and the trees, the stands of aspen, the pine, It's gorgeous. Look at all of those flowers and then sit down and look at one of them. Look closely at one of them. See the little lines in the leaves. Look at the petals and how they're put together. See the moisture captured in there. The pollen. Look at the little bitty bug crawling up the stem and its minuscule body. Think about all you know of photosynthesis and cell structure. It's a marvelous creation. Look at that flower. And then step back again and look at all of them. Take in again the vast, grand painting that he has executed. Look what he's done with all those bluebells and Indian paintbrushes. And contemplate that Solomon in all of there, was not arrayed like any of this. If he takes care of the lilies of the field, will he not also take care of you, O oh, you of little faith? What have you to fear? Nothing. Behold the beauty of the Lord. Do this in the mountains, or do it in your garden. Marvelous is his creative wisdom and his power. Gaze at it, gaze at him. See Him there. Behold some of His nature in His creation. Behold more of His nature in His Word, the Bible. Watch Him walk in the garden with Adam and Eve in fellowship with them. And watch Him cast them out of the garden when they sin. Watch Him curse their enemy, Satan. Watch Him clothe them as they now stand exposed in their nakedness this is not just a story with facts in it it's a window for you to look at and get a hold of God's nature you watch him acting and you learn who he is you see him there presented there for you you see him care for his creatures even right after they just messed up his pristine world and you learn about God's love and his mercy the whole Bible is the story of God written for you to look at and meet Him in. Gaze at Him there. Behold His nature and His beauty. See it in His nature, in His creation. See it in His Word. More so, supremely, we are meant to behold God's delightfulness in the Word made flesh. Jesus. He tells us that if we have seen Him, we have seen the Father because He and the Father are one. Watch him. Watch him heal the blind on the Sabbath, tearing down his rules to have mercy on the hurting. Watch him with a word calm the storm. See his power. But better still, behold the beauty of God in the battered body of Christ, bleeding on the cross, beset all around by enemies and false witnesses crucified, buried, brought forth again from the tomb to see the goodness of the Lord in this land of the living, brought back to life. God, our salvation, Christ, the Redeemer. Beautiful, marvelous, isn't He? Gaze at Him. He has now gone before us to prepare a place for His elect both those who have already trusted Him and those who yet will. He will be back bringing with Him a reign of righteousness and an end to wickedness and then a vast, eternal, blissful union with Himself. Do you see Him there? Do you see Him coming? Do you see that endless age of fellowship with Him? come and look, come and look. He is the beauty of God incarnate. The God who will one day bring down the holy city, the new Jerusalem descending from the clouds, a high and holy mountain, a city of light, a garden of life, and there will be no more crying there. No more death and no more sorrow and no more pain. The Lord God will wipe away all of that and will be all that we need. will be our heart and our soul's satisfaction. In that city, there is no more temple because the Lord is the temple, the place where we meet Him. In that city, there is no sun because the Lord Himself is our light. God is everything for us and will one day be more than we can imagine. Gaze at Him. Everything, everywhere will be filled with this heart and soul-satisfying God. He reigns supreme now, though not seen. He will one day reign supreme, seen. Seek Him now. Seek His face now. You must look at it. Look at Him. Behold gaze see these things I realize that if you've been around the Bible much at all you've heard a lot of if not all of this stuff already the point here the point I'm working on the point that David is expressing to us is not look at new stuff it's look at this stuff gaze behold not glance at. A 30-second peak won't work. Seek his face. Give yourself to it. It's David's one concern. The one thing he wants. I'm sure he prayed for other things. Of course he did. But by way of emphasis, he's saying, this is what I need. This is the one thing I want. God, would you give me this? If you give me this, I'll be a rich man. Please, God, hear me when I cry aloud. Don't turn your face away. Show yourself to me. Let me pull up that chair in the living room. Please. It was his passion. Is it yours? Too often, we'll take it if it comes our way. If I have time, I'll read my Bible. If the preacher's interesting, I'll listen. I hope it's your passion. It must be. It should be. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. Heed the call to seek the Lord's face. In His presence there is fullness of joy. That's where the blessed life is found. So cry out to Him, help me see you. Give me access. Determine to heed the call to seek Him and cry out to Him that He would give you access. That leads us to the third and final point. I'll be very brief here. Repeatedly, we see in the scriptures and in the psalms and in this psalm the command seek my face. The the need for us to seek Him, to look for Him in nature, in His Scripture, in His redemptive work in Christ, to look for Him there, and yet at the end, it is a request. God, open up the curtain. Let me come in. It is not, in verse 4, one thing I ask, one thing I say, I'm going to do this. It's one thing I ask one thing I seek ultimately here's the final point ultimately by grace the Lord gives himself to us emphasis there is by grace not by my self determination it's a request notice the number of things he asks for God to do give me access Hear me. Show your face to me. Don't turn your face away. Don't throw me away. Don't forsake me. Show me the path. He's asking. God must answer. It's apparent that David thinks he needs grace. We're fallen people. If he didn't deal with our sin problem in the first place, there's no way we'd have any access to him. But now, even now, we're still fallen people. He must refine us. Change us. Show Himself to us. Sometimes He doesn't do that right when we ask. I think there's grace in that too, in that it teaches us to long. It refines our faith. Holds out hope for a future when there will be no more separation. We will see Him face to face then, always. He doesn't respond immediately, but He will respond Notice David's confidence that grace will be given. You have been my help in the past. You will not cast me away now. My father and mother, they may forsake me, but you will not. You will take me in. I have confidence that I will experience your goodness here in this life. We depend on God's grace, and thankfully we stand now in God's grace. He will deal with us in that way. Trust it. You will see His goodness here in this life in the next two as well. He may not deliver you physically, but if you seek Him, you will find Him when you seek Him with all your heart. He wants to be found. He wants to show Himself to you. Let sum this up. The overarching point see it in these three steps we need vision of god to chase away fear so seek this vision and trust and pray for god in grace to give it to you put that together god provides himself as the defense from fear so we must persistently gaze at him god provides In grace, God provides Himself as the defense. We need that vision. So we must persistently seek Him. Seek to gaze at Him and to see His beauty. Let's close in prayer and spend time asking Him to show Himself to you. We're moving towards communion, but I'm going to pause right now. Let you pray and say, God, show Yourself to me. Let me see you. Let me see you more consistently and more deeply. Pray along those lines, and then I'll close, and we'll move right into
0: communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.